We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another return guest joining us this week. He is a grandmaster, five-time champion of New Mexico, an author. He has a PhD in philosophy. He is also a YouTube presenter. He used to do it on his own, but now he's joined a super band called Chess Dojo with I am Kostya Kavutsky, and I am David Bruce. Um, and despite his his many successes at chess, he also considers himself an adult improver of sorts, which we will talk about. So without further ado, let's bring him in. Grandmaster Jesse Cry, how's it going? Good. Happy to be here. Yeah, good to catch up. We were just saying before we were recording, it's been somehow almost three years since uh, our last interview. I've, I've moved. You haven't. But um, our kids are getting bigger, and you... Uh, you had a corona scare, so I, I like to get the corona talk out of the way early. Um, and yours is a particularly interesting case because I have been watching your YouTube videos whenever I can, and I know that you had a bit of a health issue. So, well, what's the story with that, Jesse? Well, I assume I had it. Um, I, you know, uh, the whole dry cough thing that persists forever, and I called to see if I could get a test, and 
they said I had to have a higher fever. I only had a fever of 99 degrees and they, they wanted more. They <laughs> wanted more than that. So I couldn't get the test, but I think at some point there's going to be this antibody test and then I'll be able to see if I got it. And of course, if I had it, it would mean I'm free to do whatever. Right. Yeah. I guess in that sense, it would be good to know. Yeah. Yeah, although I guess the science maybe there's uh, there's at least some stories circulating of of people getting it more than once after all. So there's just so much that's unknown, and I'm one of the least qualified people to talk about it. So um, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, so well, I'm glad that you're recovered from whatever it was. My wife actually had something similar. I, I didn't meet the timeline of supposedly being corona, but she had a cough that just wouldn't go away. So. Yeah, like I said, who knows? But the important thing is that you're feeling better. Although it did obviously impact your chest a lot. So how um, could you could you tell us a little bit about what you were planning? I know I've been tuning in, so I'm aware. But but what? How did this um, alter your life? This virus? Well, right. I mean, it's altered everybody's life. In in regards to chess, it's been fairly profound. You know, I had um, my chess had been kind of on a slump for a long time. I think like a lot of people who made GM, you know, it's kind of like it was an epic struggle to get there. And unless you study it in an active way and to keep up your game, you will eventually slide. You will eventually <laughs> slide down. And then you either go into retirement or you work your way back into the game somehow. And so, you know, after I made GM, you know, I wrote the book, Lisa, I did all kinds of, I did some other things and beginning around the uh, December, January, uh, this last year, I decided I wanted to get back into it mostly because I enjoy it. I enjoy studying a lot and I enjoy playing well. And there's, you know, now it's different. There's um, dreams now of doing senior events. I did some commentary in St. Louis from senior events and I'm like, this is a cool thing. I'd like to do something like that. And, and I think, you know, to play, say, the U.S. senior, I, I should, if I'm over 2,500, that would be a way to get in. And so I called my little YouTube show, uh, The Road Back to 2,500. And that's how it all started. And then I was getting really pumped into it and, you know, the whole thing. And of course, right then, Corona hit and, you know, within a day, you know, it was within a day, uh, my kids' daycare shut down. So that meant it was very hard to study. My trip to go do the GM uh, in residence at, in St. Louis was canceled. I had a tournament in Denver. I had to cancel that. And all the tournaments, suddenly it was very fast. You know, it was like a, they went from possible to just no, nothing. Yeah. Nothing is happening at all. Everything but the candidates got canceled. Right. And even that, well, even that got canceled. Yeah, eventually. Even that got canceled. Yeah. So uh, everything changed. And kind of right around the same time, I got uh, Kostya Kabutsky and David Proust got me started on doing um, Chess Dojo. And it's very interesting just to be part of that because, in the same way that my over the board chess got canceled, I got pulled into this project, which I guess is a you know, part of this new ecosystem, this new chess ecosystem that we have going on, which will simply evolve into a different thing. Like a chess is evolving into something other than it was. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I feel like I'm, you know, obviously we're just one little group doing our thing, but yeah, we're part of this change and there's all kinds of interesting dimensions where we're seeing that and trying to like work out in real time, uh, how we are going to respond to it, you know? Yeah. So you had, um, so this is, um, I believe, uh, Kostya, from what I can gather, it was possibly his idea, or maybe he and David together, or? Um, yeah, there's, you know, we each bring something a little bit different. Kosia is definitely the person with the most technological know-how, and that's what we, <laughs> that's right, he's like our point person then, because so much of this stuff is technology, you know? Um, so much of the change in chess too, when it moves online is about technology uh, on any level you want to talk about it, whether it's ratings or cheating or organizing a class, right? All of this stuff is how well does the technology work with the people, you know, yeah. that you're, you're dealing with. Yeah. And we should give just a little more background for anyone who's not um, as familiar. Kostya Kovutsky, of course, has been on the show a couple of times. I've mentioned his content many times. I'm a big fan of uh, his, he has his own YouTube channel um, and has written articles for US Chess and stuff like that. And I am David Proust, of course, long history with uh, chess.com. Um, and, uh, you know, and as a chess educator as well. Um, and you guys all have ties in the Bay Area. So I gather that that um, may have something to do with uh, the super band forming. But so now you have now you have the YouTube channel, and you're doing Twitch streaming. Um, and you've got a discord. I'm, I, of course I'm old. So I, I tried to hop in your discord and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Here. Uh -huh. Um, but so those are sort of, as far as I can tell the, um, the branches of the tree and, uh, is what's the grand vision. The grand vision I think is that we're like everybody else. We're evolving, uh, as we go, but in general, we are interested in producing content that helps people improve their game. There's all kinds of people out there doing great streams that I think are mostly entertaining. And of course we want to be entertaining too, but you know, we're trying to be out there giving concepts and ideas that are not just empty calories. Let's put it that way. That's what we'd like it to be in any case. Um, and so, you know, we've got the, the YouTube videos that we're putting up, which I, I think I enjoy the most just because you can get a little bit more polish on it. And the Twitch stuff is actually, it can be very relaxing just to sit there and watch a game. You know, you watch a game in real time and people are talking and we're chatting, talking about the ideas that's going on. Totally new thing for me. You know, I did you know, it's a totally new world. We played like a vote chess battle or two and that's fun just so I can talk with David and, Co and Kostya and like try to articulate what's going on as we're playing it. You know, usually you're alone. Um, and then it turns into, right. The game is suddenly not just you sitting at the board, but it's a social experience. And that's, I think one of the key differences that's happening now uh, as to the old days, for example, whether you're a kid or an adult in the, in the old days, you were really just by yourself and the positive reinforcement you got was maybe playing well, maybe a rating. Now, uh, there is a whole social world where people are posting in the same way you've got people like, say, trying to lose weight and they'll post 
like some picture of themselves online or something, you know, in that same way, you've got people like, oh, I solved this cool puzzle today. Check it out. Yeah. Or I got to 1900 on the Blitz rating. And that's, you know, it's a, it's actually a different world because those people then build a community. They talk to the people in their community about what they're doing and how they want to evolve their chess. And that discussion ends up really influencing how chess gets moved forward. Like, for example, you and I had no idea what a Discord server was until very recently. Right. And the Discord thing has proved like really interesting where people are on there, they're getting to know one another, and they're starting to play training games together. And, um, you know, there's some banter, there's some advice giving, there's just a general sense of community that's growing. And I didn't see that coming. So that's an example of, of something where I, I was like, oh, I didn't, this is clearly evolving. And I, I didn't even expect it. Yeah. You know, I didn't even expect something like that. And I didn't know really what a discord thing was. And, and that's turning into its own special, it's this thing where, you know, Twitch, you're talking to everybody and the discord is you're talking to whoever wants to talk about, you know, your chess situation in a very more personal way. Um, so, you know, that's the, the one of the many ways it's evolving. Here's, here's another one I was just doing today that's really kind of interesting. You know, when I was a kid, like every other kid, I was obsessed with like the chess rating. And, and even as an adult, I think it's a very interesting thing because in life, you generally can BS yourself and you can BS other people, but at least the rating is some kind of metric where you're like, okay, this is kind of where I stand. Right. right now in the online world it's like well which rating what are we talking yeah. about you know are we gonna is it the lee chess blitz rating is it the chess.com classical rating what is it we're talking about and people of course are still interested in i don't think chess players will ever give up being you know completely beholden being beholden to their ratings. And so it's an evolving situation of what does it mean to have a rating? So like I'm doing this, I'm trying to organize a uh, round robin with a bunch of 1900 players. And there's then I, I'm like, well, let's get it at least USCF rated. And then there's this whole debate of like, well, what does that mean? Why are we doing this? And there's some foreign people being like, I don't know what this is. And then, you know, there's just so this, this debate, and some people, of course, want it and others feel funny about it. And, you know, we're evolving into new kinds of chess events yeah, uh, and new rating systems, uh, new ways of training. For sure, I did my first group class on Sunday, like online over the Discord channel. And you, we just had a conversation and it worked actually remarkably well, you know, people we, we just, as long as people don't shout over each other, this discord thing allows whoever's got the floor to like talk and then somebody else talks. And it, it was actually very civil and, and interesting. Again, totally new technology pushing us in new directions. Yeah. How many were in the class? I was about 15. Wow. That's impressive. And, yeah. and they all had mics. It wasn't just people typing in a chat box. 
No, everybody was on the mic, and wow. uh, we were streaming it live on Twitch. So there was a little bit of you know people. Some people were typing stuff in in Twitch, and people who weren't part of the class could you know watch what we were doing and saying as well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And the training games are cool too. I mean, I've despite my not totally being able knowing how to navigate Discord. For the record, I did know it was a chat room. I just don't know the the intricacies. Right. But I but I I've seen people tweet like, "Oh, I just went in and found a training game." Um and correct me if I'm wrong, the the Discord aspect is free, right? Right. Yeah. So so listeners, anyone interested in um you know, just getting their feet wet and finding some, you know, we've had many guests talk about the importance of training partners. So if nothing else, so finding someone around your level. Um, yeah, and the whole rating system thing is kind of a cluster F because um, all the rating scales are slightly different, you know? So right. in addition to like different objectives, whether your emphasis is like classical or, or rapid or blitz or whatever it might be, you know, there's like different inflation on different sites. So, um, but like you say, the the, the overall thing of um, people sharing their goals and being supportive of each other is really cool and something I've noticed on, on chess Twitter as well. That, right. Absolutely. And it, yeah. and in a sense, I mean, of course we're all good hearted people and we all root for each other anyway, but it also helps. I think that we're all from different places. So like if you're in, like when I lived in Pittsburgh, you know, there's like whatever, like, you know, maybe 12 people, but over 2000 who play regularly. So of course you want them to do well. You do develop relationships with people and get friendly, but they're also the people you're playing every single tournament. Right. Whereas, Whereas here uh, online, you know, you can you can really share secrets with people and stuff. Because if we ever do get back to playing in real life, it won't necessarily be against our internet friends. Well, right. And actually, another fascinating thing about that I just realized recently too is that you know I have several students, and they would play in before this happened. They'd play in Swiss tournaments, and I'd be going over their games. And of course, what would happen is like in round one, they'd get paired way down. Then they would win and then they'd get paired way up. Yep. And then they'd do that bouncy game. And then right, maybe by round five, they're playing someone around their rating. Well, you organize all of a sudden a round robin of nineteen hundred players, and it's like, boy, howdy, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's coming to punch you in the face. And it's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know? It's kind of interesting. A totally different way of playing, which really before it was only when you go and play uh say an im or gm event that you like a round robin where someone's trying to get a norm where you're going to play people who are kind of close to you yeah and i know even you have talked uh, i think it was um i can't remember if it was in our last interview or on youtube but about how like when you go to play in swisses there often will be like a little peloton at the top of uh 2500 gms like yourself and you're like falling in and out of the peloton and it can um you know it can um like it can feel productive or unproductive. It can be a little disheartening if you, if things break in such a way where you're pared down repeatedly, but if you find training partners online, you can avoid that. Well, right. And I, you know, what's amazing to me to think about is those online, those tournaments were viral breeding grounds. Yeah. Know? And I don't like, if you remember, just think back to the bathrooms, right? Like the, like the, the, um, toilet paper that was like stomped everywhere just turned into this floating debris you know the brown paper towels spilling out and there's just gross crud like you press that door to open it and it yeah. would be moist and kind of nasty <laughs> you know so i think it's like it's it's 
both sad and good, but though that's just not going to happen, at least in the same way. Um, and part of my thing, honestly, of trying to become a better player was like, I would try the last couple of tournaments I played in. It was like, you got to beat these 2,200 kids who have like puzzle rush scores of 45 or something. And, you know, you got to kill them and you don't get any rating points if you win. And then it's only if you beat a couple in a row that you get to join what you call the Peloton, right? Then, you know, and, and then if you lose there, you're back to playing the 2,200 kids with the 45 puzzle rush score. So, yeah, all that is changing. Um, all that is changing. And the dream, I think, for somebody like me is like, we're going to get smaller events, I'm assuming right? They're going to be, instead of the monster Swisses, they're going to be smaller events like round robins. And uh, I'd, there's going to be problems of, say, funding it, right? Yeah. Like the Opens were funded kind of sort of by the lower rated players. But even that, of course, was weird because they were getting big prizes themselves for their rating class and, and yada, yada, you know. But still, uh, we're going to have to work out how that all looks going forward yeah i mean i don't know i think it might i don't know how much it'll change in a span of a few years it's certainly possible that this will re revamp everything but i also think um you know here in the u.s those huge swisses were really popular and no one's had any luck gaining traction with i mean you can have a successful small chess clubs and they're, they're a great blessing for players, but in terms of like a, a business that works, no one's been able to come up with anything else. Um, so I don't know. I think the world open might like this year, I think it would affect it. Like if they tried to do it this year, whether, whether the, um, whether the government says it's okay or not, even if the government somehow gave a, um, a green light and said, Oh, it's no problem. I think that there would be some people, um, with some concerns that, that would stop them from going. But if by next year um, everything was still okay, I, I'm not so sure that that everything would change. Fair enough. I, I mean, we don't know, right? Yeah. I, just, I just think, um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it's going to be like, for example, I grew up with the handshake and the handshake was a very yeah. sacramental event. And honestly, I'm still upset about Topolov and Kramnik not shaking hands. <laughs> like I to me it's like this thing where you're doing honor not just to the person across from you but you're kind of honoring the game and everyone who's played it before just by this simple gesture of the handshake. But right, I think that's gone. Yeah. It might yeah. not be totally gone. I don't know, but I mean we're we're obviously going to rethink that. Yeah. I mean it's interesting though because this really is a a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, I think it's called attention to the risk of spreading germs more generally. But if, if the risk more generally is just like a cold or flu, I mean, I'm not, I don't have any special allegiance to the handshake, but it, it is just funny how this one thing that has been kind of, uh, you know, um, pretty, you know, literally once in a generation event is going to just completely change people's behaviors probably. Well, I think it, well, here's a way to think about it. Like, we all accept that the earth revolves around the sun, but most of us aren't thinking about the fact that what that implies is that we are spinning at incredible speeds, mm -hmm. like incredible speeds. And no one can actually imagine that, right? No, I mean, in their daily lives, they're not thinking about it. In a similar way with the microbial world, 
like intellectually i know it's there but like it changes your perception of reality when you start thinking that they're everywhere yeah right and that's happened i think we like you know it's the awareness has simply grown in my lifetime and then now it's i feel like when i was a kid it was like people were, were saying things like oh there's this stuff in your gut <laughs> you know it's like it lives in your gut and it's a different species and now it's like oh yeah we're, we're, they are everywhere they are absolutely everywhere anyways right so it's changing and um chess is going to change with it um totally new world yeah all right well jesse i want to get more into chess improvement but first let's um take a break and hear from chessable as this week's guest, GM Jesse Cry explains, it is extremely important to know the ideas behind the openings you play and the structures behind them. And there's no better book to help you with that than Chess Structures, a Grandmaster Guide by GM Mauricio Flores Ruiz. This book is available on chessable.com featuring its Move Trainer technology. It includes 140 carefully selected model games. 30 different chapters talking about the isolated pawn, the Karo Khan formation, King's Indian positions, French positions, just so many different structures that you can benefit from. And again, with Move Trainer technology, you can make sure you really learn the material. So go to chessable.com and check out chess structures. Back to the interview. Okay, so Jesse, I want to circle back to the road to 2500 because I've... Um, I've been really enjoying that series, as I mentioned, and I really identify, I identify with it, even though I'm, I've kind of, um, I've given up the road to 2,500. I, I would yeah. like to go, I would like to get on the road back to 2,200, but at least it's a similar thing in that it's a level I once had that is now due to, um, just not playing as well and life circumstances and all that stuff. Um, I, I would like to make a concerted effort to get back to, mm -hmm. um, so do you, as, as you study chess and, feeling maybe like you need to sort of regain lost strength as opposed to just like just needing to be better. Is there any difference in your mind in how you approach studying chess? Um, well, my, my, I have some core beliefs about what it means to improve. Um, and so I, and it's, it's a very hard road to chess improvement but I haven't changed that. It's only that it's a hard road and they have to hold the line. Right. And I can say what it is very briefly. People can actually, I did a, because people ask me all the time, how do you get better? And so I finally put like a five minute video together. It's very simple. It's called the true path to chess improvement. We put that out on the dojo site, but basically, you know, it's very tough to improve as an adult and, anytime but for myself what i knew from an early age but found very difficult to put into practice was that i had to get a notebook and i had to really write out my thoughts and the variations that were happening in a given game and i had to do it with some depth and um you know the the key thing i guess to i just i could want people to understand with it. It's like, if you just play blitz or you do the same old things, you are just going to spin around the same circles and your, your ideas are going to become more and more stale. And you're going to also make the same mistakes. 
And it's only really when you realize the dynamic sources within your own positions that you're going to, you know, that you have to rethink and like renew your sense of the depth and beauty of the game is when you really get into it and you really spend some work on your own thought process. Um, and actually about you, I know that you're a fan of Yermo's book. Yeah, I wrote a chess improvement, and basically my my take is fairly similar to that, which is really an old school Russian sense of reviewing your games as the core of chess improvement. Yeah, and Yermo is, I think, even more intense than me. One of the fascinating things to me about Yermo is he's never even done tactics. At least, <laughs> at least that's what he claims. He's told me that several times, and I'm like. You know, I kind of enjoy puzzles. It's a fun thing for me to do. Um, but he's like, no, that's silly. And what's definitely true is that when you go over your games and you're searching for the resources in the position, you will learn tactics at a much deeper level because when you have a problem, you know that there's an answer. And it's not necessarily... It's, it's always going to be like white to win or white to draw. It's not going to be like, well, you have no idea what's going on in this position. Yeah. Find a path to something better, the best you can get. And maybe that's even getting a slightly worse position, right? As you're, you're just at sea and you're a normal, in a normal game, you have no idea. And the tactics usually aren't some clean cut thing, right? It's usually fairly messy. And a lot of the times the endpoint of your analysis during the game, and even when you do it afterwards with a notebook, is gonna be something like, I think black's a little bit better in this messy position. That that's oftentimes all you're gonna get. You know, something like that. Um and you know, to that end, I wanna say one thing that I got turned on to, and this has everything to do with the plight that you yourself mentioned, you're, you know, about trying to get back to 2200, is that I had this epiphany that when someone is trying to make 1200, it is just as hard as me making 2500. And I guess I had both a kind of arrogance about it, but also like some sense of like, oh, anybody could make 1200. And I realized just by coaching people of different levels that it is hard. People get stuck at a plateau and it is a real nut to crack, a real nut. I've coached people who trying to reach two, I've several people trying to reach 2000, for example. That is a tough one to break. It's all about details. And uh, it's especially when you're older, you know, it is just very difficult to make improvements. So I began to realize, I was like, oh, I have the same real problems as these people. You know, my memory is poor, my tactics are fading, um, and I have to find ways to up my game to just claw my way up just a little bit mm. and renew the, my sense, you know, the sense of beauty you find in the game when you um, get into it a little bit. And, and honestly, that's the other thing that's so big for me about trying to get back 2,500. It's not just a number, but like, I feel like if you are, especially if like you're a chess teacher and you don't work on your game, you're going to end up feeling like the game itself is kind of dull and boring. You know, you're just going to be like, oh, chess is kind of dumb. It's all worked out. It's going to feel, it's not going to feel fresh. 
so anyways, that was part of my uh, desire to work on it again as well. Yeah, well, it's great. I mean, it's very noticeable in your videos that you really relate to the the working man's plight when it comes to chess. Um, I think uh, better than than a lot of um, uh, grandmasters like yourself do. Um, so but one follow up I had. I mean, there's there's lots, but <coughs> excuse me. But with the going over games, because I know uh, the writing notes and, and Jesse is talking about has to be handwritten. For me, it's like when I handwrite something, I can't even read what I wrote. My handwriting is so bad and I do it so seldom now. But I know that uh, your your friend and student Vishnu is always posting um, screenshots on Twitter of like his many pages of notes. And I'm just like, man, I don't know if I have it in me, Jesse. I don't know if I can do it. And, right. and the other question is... Um, uh, what about rapid games? Because like, as we mentioned with sort of the landscape changing stuff, moving online, um, at the top mm -hmm. level, of course, we've got the, um, the Magnus invitational with the elite players playing rapid games. And, um, you know, I've talked many times on the show about just sort of the push and pull that, uh, a working adult can feel in terms of, uh, maybe enjoying the purity of slower games more, but the practicality of, uh, rapid games more. So if you decide to focus on say 30 to 60 minute games then how many like when do you calculate during the game and how do you approach writing notes about it totally good question and i guess what i want to say about that is i wrote this article that was you know it's for chess life so they take forever to even print the thing but it's going to come out i guess in june and one thing that i realized going into this whole COVID crisis is i've had this running dispute with greg shahada <laughs> right sometimes known as the brother of Jen Shahada or simply the lesser Shahada, right? <laughs> and it's a good natured dispute, but basically, you know, Greg has been arguing for years that chess needs to get faster. If we don't get faster, people aren't going to be into it. Um, and Greg himself, I think one of the reasons he's into it is he himself is a blitz player by nature. That's how he got good, how he came up like playing jocular uh, blitz on the streets of philadelphia new york city right back in the day which is fine um and anyways we have, we're having this debate and then it's, it's been going on for years he of course started the u.s chess league then it's the pro chess league and that was always quick games um and you know last year i had the chance it was this remarkable thing i showed up in st louis and Joy Bray, who's like the head of the World Chess Hall of Fame, calls me up. I just got off the plane. Is like, hey, you, uh, you want to have dinner with Kasparov? Wow. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, let's go. And, you know, with this fancy Italian restaurant. And, and she asked this question, like, what do we think about the classical time controls? And, you know, everybody has pretty strong feelings one way or the other. Like Rex, for example, Rex Singfield, the guy who started the chess club in St. Louis. He is very much like myself, someone who's interested in classical chess. And so, you know, I was able there to give my rant about why classical chess is better. And Kasparov, he came and he said this remarkable thing that really stuck with me, which is, look, you know, we all have our personal feelings uh, and we're going to make an argument really based on our personal feelings. And we're going to try to make it about, you know, what is good for chess when it's really what's good for you. but. If you just take a step back and look at the situation, this was, of course, before COVID. You just take a step back. It's clear that the trend is toward faster chess. 
right? And so what's happening now with the move to online is, oh, well, th this is definitely, I was already kind of losing the battle with Greg Shahada, right? The trend was already going against me. And now with COVID, well, we are moving toward faster chess because online chess is simply quick chess. There's no two ways about it. People are playing bullet and, you know, forget rapid. <laughs> they yeah. are into playing bullet. The kids today, if you try to get them to play a five minute game against you, they're like, whoa, what are you, what, what are you doing, grandpa? This is pretty slow stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, for them, even three minutes, a little bit slow. So um, when I, if you catch me arguing for like longer longer chess really i'm i'm very much in the minority i'm this person cultivating a lost art in the corner right um and do i think that you can review quick games yes but but it's kind of gross right uh -huh. because you're going to be making you're always going to have I mean, even in a long game you're going to have several moves that you make that you're just going to feel terrible about but in a 30 minute game, oh man, you're gonna, that's one of the terrible things about a 30 minute game, right? People are gonna make some true howlers, some real howlers. And um, to Greg's credit, I will say, watching those matches is sometimes fun, right? Like uh, there's this great tournament going on now called I Am Not a GM. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's <laughs> and uh, they start off playing the very, slow five minutes plus one second increment or something and then move on to bullet chess you know pr progress through different time things and uh time controls hold on we should hop in and explain it like fully just in case anyone okay yeah because i think it'll still be ongoing when this comes out at least finishing up but basically chess.com um sponsored an invitational uh tournament for um players only only open to the people they select who are not gm so it's not like you're your typical, then uh, it's not the same old roster that you're used to seeing, although it is a lot of sort of online chess personalities. But uh, Danny Wrench himself is playing in it. Greg, mm -hmm. The aforementioned Greg Shahadi, uh, Christoph Zalecki, Chess Explained, um, Anna Zatonsky, Kostya Kovutsky, David Proust. Right. Um, so lots of, um, lots of, oh, Lawrence Trent. Um, so lots of uh, fun sort of online personalities, but we don't get to see them. Oh, and John Bartholomew, who yeah. might be the favorite to win it, in my humble opinion. Um, so, it, yeah, it's just fun to see different people playing. And um, yeah, sh shout out to chess.com for, for, for putting that on. But anyway back to what you were saying well it's funny with so bartholomew spanked my my friend uh Proust real bad and it hurt i have to admit it hurt me real bad. Yeah. <laughs> and we got a great match coming up with costia's playing uh lawrence trent yeah friday uh you know i don't know when this is going to come out but anyways that'll be what i'll give a yeah. date here that's going to be what yeah this will be out later this is on tuesday, a week from from tuesday the 27th so that'll, that'll already be over but in any case you know some exciting events and i think you know, that it's just part of this trend where things are getting faster and people are into it. And, you know, the, the terrible thing about Blitz Chess is it's not about good openings. It's not about uh, deep strategical thinking. It's about, you know, having Blitz skills. Like, how good is your pre-move? I still don't know how to do pre-move. <laughs> I still don't know how to do that stuff. And, and like, let's call them 
quick tactics, right? There's very rarely any kind of deep tactics that go on on a blitz game, right? But, you know, your awareness has to be hyper fast about the most obvious things in the position. You know, I thought Bartholomew, actually, I thought his match against Proust was in a lot of ways a, an advertisement for Chessable because the guy had a couple structures, especially in the Sicilian. And David is, you know, he is a very stubborn man. And so he kept on like banging his head against that wall when he should have just played one B3 or something like that. And so he was completely outworked already before a lot of those games started, you know? Yeah. I mean, John knows his, he knows his structures. Right. You know? right. I mean, so, uh, yeah. And speaking of structures, I, I saw you mention in, in one of your, one of your videos that you also feel in that, you know, you're, we're both in our forties. So again, I could relate to this, how you feel like you have trouble memorizing moves. So that's not your focus. I mean, speaking also of Yermo, the road to chess improvement, something that he mentions, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little about general advice of, of how to do that, especially for people maybe not as strong as you who, for whom the like understanding a structure might not be as intuitive. Like how do you shape a repertoire around um, less memorization and more understanding? Yeah. Um, well, there's a secret trick first of all, and it's pretty obvious when you think about it. And that is if you play closed positions, those positions will be uh there'll be more options for both sides and that will make them more difficult for your opponent to prep them out they'll also become more um uh, relatable to structures right so if you play an opening i don't know i don't care what it is and you uh study it hopefully with a notebook, but you guys more than one way to study it. You could go over classic games as well. Uh, you will gain a sense of where the pieces belong within the structure and what kind of plans are available. I guess a cool word I like to use now is that, you know, every position has a kind of vocabulary of plans, right? And it's not like one is always right, but you need to have a sense of like what the possibilities are in a given structure. And that is not uh, really a memorization of, you know, a sequence of moves that it honestly, it's hard for anybody, but it's especially harder for us old guys to do. Okay. So um, if you were to like, let's say you're just starting your, your opening from, from scratch, like say, um, I mean, it doesn't matter, E4, D4, whatever it is. Like, do you look for similarities in the lines you play? Like, if you're playing E4 against the French and the Caro, do you look for similar, like, try to find similar positions, play the exchange against both sort of thing? Or, you know, like, how do you, um, how do you go from, from there? Because it can, it can be a lot of structures still, depending on, like, if you're playing D4, C4, it's going to be a lot of different structures playing against all the, you know, D4 defenses. So if you're not playing one of these, um, I mean, I don't like, uh, like the Catalan or the London or something where it's a specific setup, I feel like it can still be hard to, to do all that. Right. And one funny thing that I'm sure you've observed is that in our lifetimes, we've gone from D4, C4 as being just the 90% of games mm -hmm. to now like London, <laughs> yeah, London, a lot of people play in the London, 
And um, honestly, I think the London has a lot more to do with Carlson's playing style and people not realizing that they're mimicking it, right? Because Carlson is all about just getting some very minuscule advantage or even an equal position and just milking it. Yeah. You know, so we have loads of people playing the London. But if you wanted to do something like that, there's all kinds of people, things you could do. You could play the Collie. You could play that Zuckertort thing. You could do all kinds of things. But um, in in general, right, like what people will be seduced by is the dream of the advantage, right? Like you turn on the computer and the computer is going to tell you some stuff. And if you want to try to like follow the computer's advice, you're going to find yourself in positions that you just have no grounding in, right? You will have not a clue about what is going on there. But if you can find positions where you're like, oh, I, okay, I kind of get this, then that really is going to help. And, and like studying those positions, I think this is the key thing I would say. It's not the openings themselves that are going to make you a better player. It might feel that way in the short term, right? It, you might have some victory after you do your chessable course and some guy walks into the trap and you're going to feel potent and strong and you're going to be like, rawr, you know? But really what's going to make you strong is if you do whatever course it is, whether it's chessable, you read a book or whatever, and you get a sense of that structure and how it works, well, then you can start relating it to other things. and. Uh, you know, I think at after at a certain point, you know, all chess players have experience really with all structures and you shouldn't be that afraid of any of them. Right. Like when I was a kid and even to this day, there's people who are afraid of playing either with or against the isolated queen pawn. No, come on. You've got to get over it. <laughs> you've yeah. got to get over it buddy and you got to realize that those are just standard positions that you should understand the basics of of, of what, what what's going on you know when is it good and when is it bad um so right i in and in general you know i am not a fan of thinking that the openings are going to help you that much i feel like the people who are doing that, it's the same kind of people like who are learning tennis and then think that the fancy racket's really going to help them, mm. you know? Uh, and the fancy racket, it, it might do have a nice placebo effect. You know, you might really feel strong when you hit that serve with your fancy racket. <laughs> and that's going to, sometimes there's a little bit of confidence is important in chess, but like over the long run, yeah, I don't think it'll help that much. Yeah. Although I find myself in a sort of um, catch 22 in that I've been saying similar things and sort of my philosophy for, for years that opening shouldn't be that big of an emphasis. But part of the reason I've always felt that way is my own personal experience playing in classical was like you had an I mean, first of all, you if you play a lot more, that helps. But also like you have time to kind of fake your way through it. If you end up in a position you don't know, like you can sink your teeth in and figure it out. But now as as I try to speed up my game and play these game 30s, I'm like, well, you know, it would be kind of nice if I could like bang out the first 20 moves, you know, like right. and, and have so, have a better idea of how to solve it. But I guess that can come in time, like you say, in knowing the structures. And of course, it won't be that high quality chess anyway, because. Well, because right. Of, and, and when you play the Blitz, too, my experience is it often ends up very quickly in some weird sideline. Like, other, yeah, they're not people aren't trying even in blitz chess to do 
very accurate things. And it's not, I don't, yeah, if you, I think the good blitz players are very, you look at like the, the very good blitz players, they have blitz repertoires that are just based on a crud. I mean, they yeah. just want to like, they just want to throw you off balance and fine. You know, that's what blitz chess is, I guess. Yeah. All right. So Jesse, we have a question from a supporter of the podcast who I think you might be internet friends with. Um, it is Martin uh, Justison, Say Chess on Twitter. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Okay. So shout out to Martin. And he asks, um, he says two questions. He says, hi, Jesse, two questions. It seems like you have a very unique way of looking at a position and telling its story. I'm curious if your schooling and philosophy has shaped your way of looking at chess. Um, and the second question is and what would you advise amateurs to do in order to make positions speak to them? Now you did some philosophy too, right? Am I right? No, no, no. I was a liberal arts, but not philosophy. Okay. Um, yeah, I feel like, um, well, it's an interesting question. I feel like most people who are students of the game who've read some books and are kind of interested in what's going on in the position have kind of a philosophical bent anyway. So in a lot of ways, like the same things that drew me to philosophy are the same things that drew me to chess. And actually to quote Kasparov again, he's like, just like people, when you think about chess players, they're people who enjoy thinking, right? They just, there's just a visceral joy and beauty in thinking. And, um, so, uh, do, but do I think that philosophy's helped? I think it's helped me explain things to maybe a broader audience. It gave me a, maybe the vocabulary to talk in ways that maybe other people don't. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, especially the people who've tried to articulate chess ideas have a philosophical bent, even if it might not be, you know, with a PhD next to their name, if that makes sense, right? If you just, yeah, you just look at people. Every every strong player has a chess philosophy, for example. They have very strong, very strong grounding in their chess principles. And I think that's one of the key things that every chess player needs to do is to write it out, like what the what their chess values are. You know, if you don't if you don't have a clear sense of it, yeah, you're a little bit lost. Like, well, what is it? You know, what is, what do you believe? What is your, what is your sense of uh, the values of say time and material and um, a lot of the other factors that we have going on in the chessboard? Um, I don't know if that's, that's not a great answer, but I do think the, the most salient thing I can say is that I've always been drawn to thinking and well-expressed ideas, whether they were in philosophy or chess. And to me, chess is very similar to philosophy. And I think there's a there's actually a large background of people who, whether it was Lasker or all these other guys, the old timers, who were also very interested in philosophy. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And what about um, Martin's question about um, how would you advise amateurs to to make positions speak to them? What Right. I think it's very important, you know, to, to realize that, that you are going to be lost in a position unless you can create some kind of story about what you think is going on. It doesn't have to be the right story, but you have to say to yourself, okay, I think what's going on is this. 
right? I think where the night wants to go is to this place. I think, you know, what the, uh, what, to, to name, or another way of saying it is to at least name what the imbalances in the position are, right? And then once you name the imbalances, that's a good, a good start to saying just like, what do you think is going on? I, it's very, actually, it's a, one of the surprising things to me, a lot of students is, I go, we start looking at a position and I say, well, how many Tempe is black, say, up? And they don't even know what I'm talking about because they haven't said to themselves, oh, time is important. We better come up with a way of talking about it. And so um, I think there is a, a variety of ways, but the most important is for you to write it down. Now, by the way, I just want to say this. Uh, something I have deep experience with is I have not always followed my own rule of studying my own games because it is very painful. It is a very painful process. And so I have failed on multiple phases of my life in doing it. And that's when my chest has suffered. Uh, and it was simply too hard for me to do it. And of course, if you want to let life get in the way, it will get in the way. And I also have a lot of experience of telling even very intelligent people to go over their games with a notebook. And they have also found it just simply too hard. It feels so much easier to say, play puzzle rush or play blitz or do this or do that. And they love chess. And so they're going to be doing all these other things, right? But they're not going to be really sinking their teeth into the meat of the matter. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, I can, I could force myself and I do have to force myself, but I can force myself after I finish a game, spend 30 minutes or maybe an hour looking at it without an engine mm -hmm. and I'll open, I'll open the PGN and I'll type in my thoughts like, but I can't take out a notebook and right, you know, right, right. like do the, the painstaking many hours. Yeah. And that's just like, I can't even fathom. I just have to be honest. Like that's just, I mean, maybe when my kids are out of the house, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> that's about it yeah no it's a very difficult process and you know and what you see too is most most players are stuck on a plateau and most players it's not just some plateau that's just sitting there people are trying to improve and you look at say the adult improvers for example i think say chess is a great example of a guy who is writing thoughtfully about his experience talking about it um and it's hard and actually yeah. like a lot of people if i remember this correctly he started off with a grand vision of something like i'm going to become fm yeah very difficult uh, i think he was you know maybe i don't know 16 1700 when that dream started and now he's like dude i just want to make 2000 and he's realizing oh my god that is it might seem like a modest goal but oh buddy it's going to yeah. be really tough, very tough. And so to make that progress, you know, I think people have to realize it's not going to be easy. You are challenging the limits of your mind. And, and I really, this is where the epiphany comes. I really don't think it's much of a difference of whether it's me trying to be 2,500 or somebody trying to be 1,200. I mean, I have seen people struggle to get 1,200. It is not an easy thing. And what do you when you've had those students, students around that level and they're stuck at a plateau, I mean, like, is, is the advice identical about going over your games or is there something slightly different you might prescribe for, for, um, 
players um with a little bit lower ratings well my my personal experience is this is that um i feel like what often ends up happening is because it's so hard for people to go over their games they hire me as a coach right and then i help them go over their games and i i hope that's helpful you know and i i guess i believe that's helpful but it's kind of what the the message i have for people out there is like of course you can hire me and i love talking to people about chess i honestly feel it helps my own chess especially and honestly whether they're 1200 or 1500 as long as they're into it as long as they want to improve um i i enjoy teaching when i think it's a beaut- i don't mind that at all but what i what i try to tell people is like yeah it would be maybe nice to pay me a lot of money to teach you but I want to be clear that all the tools are in front of you and they don't right. cost anything but your time and your energy. I mean, it, it is, you know, I said in this video that it's going to be like therapy, but harder <laughs> because in therapy, you're, you get to blame other forces in the world. Right. And there's not a lot of, I don't know when I'm doing my notebook, I, I don't, I don't know if I was going to blame somebody, I don't know who it would be, but myself, right. I have no idea. And of course, with the, you know, with the chess, you're going to be making mistakes you've already made or mistakes similar in nature, and it's going to be very painful. And you're going to be like, why? Why do I have to suffer through this? You know? Yeah. So what would be some of the examples of the, I mean, obviously, I I could hazard a guess, but you say all the resources are at hand. So if you, you know, the proverbial question, the you know, 12 to 1500 student is asking you like, um, say they play one tournament a month and then they mm-hmm. study, you know, 10 hours a week, which to me is impressive. Very impressive. Um, what, what would you recommend? How would you recommend someone spend that amount of time? I would say all on those games that you played in that tournament, the once a month tournament, even if it was once every two months, you still have more than enough material to keep you busy for your 10 hours. And if they weren't sure what to do in the opening, are they looking up the opening line or just trying to sort of recreate the feeling? I, I think that depends a little bit on level. You know, I feel like once you get to maybe 1900, 2000, then it's the time to get chess space maybe. But even then, I'm not sure it's that, that helpful. Um, and I, but I do think once you start going over your games, you're going to start realizing the, uh, the structures that you find yourself in because they will be similar you will end up playing the same structures your intuition whether you have a name for the opening or not your intuition is going to have a similar a desire in every game it's going to want to put the pieces on similar places that you put in in the last game and then you're going to look at it and um i think the one of the great things is you can go online and you can listen to people like me or others talk about chess positions and you can use the words and concepts that we hopefully express with some degree of clarity and then use them for your own game you know i think you can absolutely do that you 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 want to stay focused on your own decisions and your own rationalizations for how you you know play but sure you can steal words and concepts from all around you and especially in this new age where we've got Discord servers and Twitter and like Magnus talking and all kinds of other people talking, some of them more coherently than others, right? You have you can find 
someone whose chess makes sense to you and you can say, all right, I'm going to listen to this person or I'm going to study their games. And I think that's actually, uh, you know, after, after, uh, you know, committing yourself to um, some kind of plan of studying your own games, I think finding someone whose chess you understand is very critical, whether it's a coach or some famous player. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's had this experience where you go over somebody's games and you just are like, I have no idea what this person is doing. I don't, I don't understand this person's moves. Um, and uh, of course, it will help your chest to try to understand those moves. But there will be other strong players that you're like, okay, I've seen a lot of games of this guy or woman. And now I have a sense of what their chess values are. And I have a pretty good guess about how they're going to play and how they're thinking about the position. And, you know, then, then you, once you identify that, then whoever that person is, you can start aligning your chess value. You, it's like an expression of your chess values, right? Be like, oh, that's, that's, that's who I am. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Do you, have, do you yeah. have someone like that or does that, does someone speak to you in their terms of their chess? I mean, I, when you were talking about it, I thought of Capablanca. I mean, I loved his games and definitely I, I find them like, I, I appreciate, I feel like I'm more able to follow them than especially the modern grandmasters. So right. that would, that was who I thought of. But the other thing I've the, got my, the, the other direction, my mind went wandering is in, uh, Chess for Life by uh, Natasha Regan and Matthew Sadler. Someone that they interview is talks about just finding some. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a, um, you know, top ten grandmaster. Just like some, you know, high level chess player, and you can even adapt their repertoire and go through their mm -hmm. games. And who's the the guy? It's last name begins with a C. Who plays the Scandinavian with Queen D six? Um, as I I want to say Timoshenko, but I might be conflating grandmasters. But anyway, um, they they give the example of this guy who's like the world authority in the Scandinavian, um, uh -huh. and has just been playing it for for many many years. Apologies if I um got the name wrong. So that was the other direction my mind went of uh, just like finding someone, and it you know again doesn't have to be a a tippy like top ten player, and also trying to um learn from their repertoires. And again, that that's talking more about structures than memorization, right? No, that makes a that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually, you know, Ben, I think one thing that's interesting about you is you are an uh, one of the last uh, chess readers out there, right? Like you, it seems to me like you are reading a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoy reading chess books. Now I'm doing these these book recap pods, so uh -huh. part of that is, I mean, they're fun to do, and and uh, I think people, the people who listen to them, enjoy them, but it's also, it's like, um, it's like joining a gym, you know, right. it's like, it, it forces me to do it as well. So there's, um, competing motivations, but yeah, I mean, I certainly, I love, I love reading like, right. you know, like, like everything else in life. It's like, sometimes you go through periods where you're feeling really good and doing it a lot. And then there's periods where you're like, um, not doing it as much as you would like, but in, in theory, I, I really enjoy it. Right. 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 No. And I think like, that's one of the that's of course one of the interesting shifts as well of course has happened before this crisis but is definitely being accelerated by it where we are moving every year we're moving more and more away from the printed work 
right? And um, I had, you know, this kid I had years ago at some chess camp, I gave him a book and like, you know, you give the, somebody wins a prize and you give him a, give him a, a, you know, a trophy and I gave him a book and he, he looked at it and was like, and not as a joke, but in all earnestness, like a 10 year old kid. And he says to me, this isn't very user friendly. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> and I was, oh, it made sense that some of this new generation sees it and they want answers faster than flipping through a book yeah it'll be interesting to see how it changes because books more than in so many other realms they're such a big part of the culture you know like i mean I've, i have a poker background but if you compare it to like pool or whatever i mean it's hard to come up with comparable hobbies i guess go or something I don't know, but I feel like there's there's a unique um, affinity for chess literature amongst chess fans. And the bond is so strong that even though you do come across the kids who just want to do puzzle rush and stuff, I do feel like maybe maybe books will be OK. I mean, they're certainly I haven't seen them slow down, you know, in the past five years. Oh, I, I disagree with you there. I mean, I'm a, I'm very much a fan of books, but. The young kids are not reading books. <clears throat> And uh, actually, this amazing thing, I, you know, I'm friends with uh, Fidel Corrales Jimenez. Maybe you've had him on the show. And he uh, just was like, no, I never read a book. Man. Oh, wow. I haven't I, had him on the show, I, I but just, now, now I want to. Yeah, I just did chess space. That's how I learned everything. You know, he got a chess space and then started playing through the games and yada, yada, and had some friends and they talked and uh, the whole Cuban chess scene. But no, no, no books. And the other thing about books, of course, is, as you know, there's nobody making money in books because it's hard to uh, it's it's hard to find that huge of an audience. And without the money, there's going to be far less impetus for the top players to really sit down and write their thoughts down. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 less the top players than like all of the working professional grandmasters. Right. Um but they're they're turning out tons of books. I mean, and I agree that the money is not huge, but it seems to be like, you know, someone like Cyrus Lakdawalla, right? Who who I've had on the show, like it's just, I mean, he says the hourly rate of him doing the books is terrible right. by his by his admission, but he just loves doing it and he does make some money, right? So he just that's that's the life he's chosen, you know. Sure. Um, it definitely could be worse. So, and. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the kids are definitely that's where that's where my knowledge gap would be because I'm, you know, I have this adult chess audience and the the kids that I teach are like brand new, so they're they're not even representative. Um but yeah, so we'll yeah. I mean books aren't going to go up in popularity. I think we can safely no. <laughs> rule, we can rule that we can rule that out. And one cool thing, I mean, I think uh for chess people to think about is this fascinating thing where <clears throat> I wrote a touch about this in this chess life article, but you know, let's say when you did liberal arts at college, you, you probably were introduced to some kind of history of thought, which involved names of people who said, or, you know, thought certain things. Right. And <clears throat> that's one way of looking at it. But another dynamic way of looking at history of thinking is to say it's all about how information is uh, produced and disseminated. So, for example, in that view, you say, oh, right, it's not, the Reformation has nothing to do with some dude 
uh, doing something at a church in Wittenberg, right? Nothing to do with that. It's about the evolution of the printing press. And, you know, when you think about chess in that view of history, then you say to yourself, oh, right, well, everything's changing now. And for sure, also, the written word is toast. <laughs> I mean, it's over. <laughs> you know, we're moving. It's not even clear that the wooden pieces or, I mean, the wooden pieces, in the same way the written word is going to de is declining in value, my beautiful wooden pieces that I live with here on my desk, well, they're declining in value too because I'm simply going to play far less, I think, uh, in tournaments. I would like to, but I don't think it's happening in the same way that it used to. Wow. Huh. It'll be interesting. Yeah, this is an interesting moment in time. We'll have to <laughs> reflect back on um, sometime in the future. Um, so last thing, Jesse, if you're okay with it, sure. um, we got um, a question. So last time I had you on, and I sh should have mentioned earlier, but listeners who want to know more about Jesse's background, we 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 went deep into his whole chess story and his getting a PhD in philosophy and his his hard work for the Grandmaster title. Um, that was in uh, October of 2017, so it's been a while. And um, at the end of that show, we talked a little bit of TV. We talked about Breaking Bad and The Wire. Uh -huh. um, and uh, someone, uh, a, a supporter of the show, uh, wrote in a question. This is from Cody Noble. Cody asks, he says, um, on your last Perpetual Chess interview, you were just about to watch Stranger Things 2, but we're a little concerned as sequels and follow-ups aren't usually that good. Did you enjoy it? And have you watched the third season? <laughs> um, I did think it was enjoyable. I think, um, though, I'm really trying to move away from TV. Uh, I think it's empty calories for me. You know, like it makes, especially now, like now with uh, the daycare being closed, I have very little time for myself to think. And I'm, I'm willing to watch a show, but I want there to be an incredible amount of hype around it before I commit to watching it. Like, Ben, Ben, you need to tell me that <laughs> this show is good, and then several other of my yeah, friends yeah. need to tell me it's good, and then I will sink some time into it. But did I watch Stranger Things, uh, Things 3? No, I didn't. I'm, it probably is pretty entertaining. Um, I thought the first season was kind of fresh. You know, they were doing some cool stuff. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, too, I was trying to write fiction, which I have put on hold. Ah, right. Meant to ask you about that. Yeah. So, so my narrative back then was, OK, I'm allowed to watch some TV because I'm interested in just the way modern narrative is being presented. <clears throat> Even though I was writing, you know, there's TV and novels have the similarity of talking about narrative of the trajectory of people's lives and how they interact with the world. Um, so anyways, that was my rationale. And I'm like, now I'm like, no, that's just empty calories. Stay away from the TV. <laughs> and yeah. And, then, and now with the kids home and stuff, it's like, if I have to ever watch Paw Patrol again, I'm just, gonna... Oh my God, that's the worst one. <laughs> that is the worst, the worst one. <laughs> I could take any of the other shows, but that one is just so loud. It's like such an offense to the, 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 your senses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm with you though. I mean, I, I'm, I thought the, the one thing about TV shows, it's nice to watch them with my wife. Yeah. So it's like something we can do together when we're both fried. But other than that, I, trying not to watch i mean it's not even trying i just 
you know, there's just not that many hours in the day. So, um, yeah, I, I actually, I haven't even seen stranger things, but, um, yeah, there's more shows that I, in theory would like to watch than, than I ever will. And so you mentioned the, the fiction's kind of on the back burner. And the other thing you said is you were, you weren't sure if you're going to stay in Baltimore, but you guys are still there. Well, right. I think, you know, we really, my, my, we came here, I should say to, um, because my wife had the dream of doing an MFA here at Hopkins and that is done now. And, you know, Baltimore is a very problematic city, especially if you want to send your kids to school. So we're just like looking around (laughs) for different places to move to. And there's a, a lot of the, a lot of this situation that the COVID thing is really changed our perspective on what it is we're looking for so for example i wanted to be at least within shouting distance of some major metropolitan area so i could do things like chess tournaments but if the chess tournaments are going to cease to exist then you know i don't know we might as well get a cabin out in vermont or something (laughs) you know i don't know i don't know so yeah we're uh this thing has completely upended or put on hold that question right yeah wait it out and see what things look like um no one's buying or selling houses now anyway right no one's moving so it's we're just all kind of stuck for a while okay yeah i i don't know yeah i'm not quite as bearish on tournament chess as you are but but um we'll see it'll be interesting um okay well oh so i mean in closing of course we should remind listeners about chess dojo um, by the way, nice merch, Kostya. I haven't had a chance to tell him online. You guys got the mugs and the t-shirts already? Yeah, Kostya did some. We got, And, you know, one cool thing about the Discord is we have people who are just like, oh, I love you guys, and let me design some logos and stuff for you. And this guy from Israel named Dor was like, oh, yeah, I'll put this thing together. And, and then another guy did some other work. And so we just have, like, logos and stuff, and then we put slap them on some mugs and – all of a sudden we've got merchandise. You know, that's awesome. That yeah. yeah. That's great. Okay. So in terms of people, if they're interested in, in, um, in finding out more about the community, joining the discord and taking things from there, um, what should they do? What's their next step? Uh, go to uh, the video, the true path to chess improvement. I'm going to plug myself. Yes. Here. Which I did see by the way. And yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring. Good, good editing as well. It's, it's fun. <laughs> Anyways, you can watch any of our videos. I just mentioned that one. And then underneath the video, there's a link to our Twitch channel and the discord server. Anyone can join our discord server. And that is a cool community that is evolving, uh, you know, more people every day. And, really like a committed group of people who are hanging out talking about stuff and so yeah it doesn't feel like this amorphous pr- pursuit when you're trying to improve your chest and i like as we mentioned before there's this whole group of people who suddenly like this happened in the last one one and a half years i feel like where people are starting to call themselves chess improvers or chess punks or all these other designations that i'm like oh yeah i did no one talked about that before yeah, it's right. Nice. And that's this new thing. It is kind of fresh and cool. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And I'll also put the links for all those things directly in, in the description for the show so people can find it. And as for you personally, Jesse, um, is your your YouTube channel is um is phasing out. Um, is that right? Right. I haven't posted. I had a Twitch thing, too, and I haven't I've, I've just moved everything to the dojo. I've OK, been- but you're still on Twitter. Is that your? Yeah. Preferred? I'm, you, okay. yeah I'm on Twitter, too. 
Okay, so I'll link to that as well. And thanks again. It was uh, good to catch up, Jesse. Yeah, I'll talk to you sometime soon. Special thanks to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to you all for continuing to listen to and spread the word about Perpetual Chess. You can spread the word on Twitter. Follow me. I'm at Beneficial1. You can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the dialogue about each interview after it is released. I also want to thank the people who've written a few new reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's good to see. Reviews on other podcast platforms and YouTube are also appreciated. But of course, most of all, I would like to thank the people who provide financial support to the show, especially these days as a lot of our lives are in upheaval. We're stuck at home. There's work changes and all that stuff. So it means the world to me that you guys have stuck with me and even in some cases added new support in these crazy times. So thanks. I really appreciate it for anyone who's able to support it is the Perpetual Chess Patreon page where you can donate through PayPal if you go to perpetualchesspod.com. So with that out of the way, first of all, of course, I would like to thank the sponsor of the show, Chessable. And I also would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities for their support. They include Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to give thanks to the following people and entities Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Peja, FM Andre Tarakov, Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, David Bleskachek, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of the U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramerly of Chessable.com, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am elect or possibly not I am elect, Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latart Lavoie, Francis Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Murr, Jason Anfang, Jason Willem, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Stranod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman of the U.S. Chess Federation, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I.M. Kare Christensen, 
WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Wrightforth, Laura Boyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Alert, Miguel Araspati, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solin, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Dougherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Thomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Soyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will catch you all soon. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.